0: John chapter 15, starting at verse 12, John chapter 15, reading at verse 12, the word of the Lord, the of the Lord reads... This is my commandment, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends, if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all things that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give to you. This I command you, that you love one another. Father, again, we come before you in the name of your Son, who has given us this commandment. Would you, Lord, enable us to walk in this manner that you have called us to walk We do pray for our pastor now, Eric, as he's preaching probably right now, that you would move through him, that he would speak the utterance through the power of your Holy Spirit, that he would edify and build up the body there because of what you're doing in him and through him. So, Lord, we just pray now, even for us, as we hear from you, I pray, God, that we would hear only from you and that we would be changed by you. In Jesus' name, amen. It's been studied that children who grow up in a home where the parents express love and affection for one another, how the parents, or excuse me, how the children are benefited by, by viewing that in their parents in many ways, that a child who sees his mother and father as those who love one another, that child is benefited by viewing that love in many ways. They, they're documented as performing well in school. It has an impact on that child's own future marriage as well, by seeing that model of a husband and a wife who love each other dearly. There's many other benefits that this child receives having viewed his parents as loving each other. Seeing how your parents loved can be a critical factor also in how you love your own spouse. That what you see is oftentimes what you replicate. But praise God, although these studies they do provide an, an astute observation on just the nature of mankind in a real way and the impact of just love and a relationship, these kinds of studies always have outliers. And praise God for these outliers. So for example, my own dad, he didn't have this model for him displayed before his eyes at all as a child. In fact, my father, when he was around an early teenager uh, my grandmother, his mother, had a mental breakdown after a tragic event unfolded right before her eyes that impacted her dearly. And she had a mental breakdown. They diagnosed her with schizophrenia and they took him away from her and his older brothers went to the military by that time so they were already out of the house. So It was just him, my mom. They took him away from her, placed him in juvenile hall. Not because he did anything wrong. He didn't break a law. He just, There was no one to care for him. Um, by every statistic, my father should have either been incarcerated long term, he should have been addicted on drugs or alcohol, he, he should have been homeless, or he should have even been an absentee father in his own home growing up. By every statistic, my father should have been, as they would say, a, a broken or an absent father. But praise God for outliers, because although my father didn't see that before his eyes, what one family did to my dad One family member, his aunt, shared the gospel with him. And from that moment, his life was changed. And though my father did not see what it looks like for a husband to love his wife or for a wife to love her husband, he experienced that love personally in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that love changed him radically. That he no longer perpetuated a broken home. That he experienced the love of Christ for himself and he was changed. And that had generational impact down to me. My dad's my Superman. And what he taught me what it, what it means to be a man, to be a man who loves Jesus. He taught me what I know today. My dad is my superhero. He is my Superman. And it perpetuated generationally down to his home and even to mine. At least I hope so. <laughs> but it had tremendous impact. It's one thing to see and to hear about love but beloved, it's another thing to experience love. It's another thing to have to be a recipient of that love. That is the basis of this passage here. In our passage this morning, if I can ask you, just in your answer in your own mind, what is the main thrust, the main objective that Jesus wants his disciples to hear? If you look at this passage again, look at verse twelve. And look at verse 17. The two commands, if you will, that are sandwiched in this passage. To love one another. I think that's what he really wants us to hear. That you love one another. That he repeats that twice. That I think we must get the point here. The Lord wants his disciples to love one another. And we can say the same for us. That the Lord wants you to love one another. And yet that's repeated, and that is the thrust of it. That's his point. How does he spend the bulk of his time in this passage? What does he spend most of his words explaining in this passage? Verses 13 through 16, detailing his love for them. Even though he wants them to love one another, that is crucial. We must do that. He spends most of his time in this passage explaining and demonstrating his love for them. And we're going to learn here how love is beyond a sentiment. I think we know that love, it primarily involves action. And though this action is not divorced from emotion, but we miss love if we only keep it at emotion that this love pours out into action. Every born again believer knows what Christ has done. If you're in Christ, if he has saved you, you know what he has done. But what we must do and push forward is not only just know what he has done, but behold what he has done. We must not just know his love, but behold his love. There's a difference. Let's examine this. this It's the context here that this comes in. We're jumping right in the middle of this chapter here. But if you remember, the Lord is speaking to them in the upper room discourse. This upper room discourse is kind of like the team huddle meeting right before the game. The Lord knows what lies ahead of him. Ahead of him is the cross, his passion. And he's taken his disciples aside to give them an immense amount of truth that we reap even today as believers in Christ. And if you remember in this whole uproom discourse that starts in chapter 13, that works its way even over to chapter 17, what are some of the main things that Jesus really wants his disciples to hear? What does he want us to hear from him? He's really nailed down the importance of unity amongst those who are Christians. He wants them to be one. He reiterates reiterates that time and time again. Even says in the next chapter, Father, I pray that they would be one as you and I are one. He encourages love time and time again. I pray that they would love one another. He tells them, you love one another. He wants them to be humble in their service for one another. That of all the things that the Lord could have said to them in their last hours together, where does he spend his time in emphasizing the importance of God's people being one and that oneness is displayed through love, which is rooted in humility. That the Lord wants us to be a loving people, a unified people. It is the utmost importance that as Christ is leaving, he exhorts them, love. How do we do this? We need to know this, but what's more important is look how he explains how we're to love each other. How do we love this? How do we achieve this? And I want to do it sort of how the Lord did it in in this passage here. I want to make sure it's clear by the end of this that we understand that we need to love, and even we're going to explore it by application, how do we love, but I also want us to see is how we are to do that. And I think the main thing he goes after is what I want to go after is by contemplating just three wonders of Christ's love for us that should stir you to love one another. I just want us to contemplate just three wonders of Christ's love for us that should stir us to love one another. Because again, he points their direction to his love and this love should pour out in your love. So we need to have a right understanding of what is this love that has been given to his beloved so that we can love one another. Now again, I I would venture to say that our promise, our our problem, excuse me, tongue tied this morning, that our problem is not knowing this. It's not our problem, but rather it's living it. It's so easy for us to say the importance of Christians loving one another, but it's another thing to live it. We don't have an intellectual barrier. We have a spiritual one. We lack in love because we don't behold his love. And this problem really is just one reason that we lack in bearing fruit sometimes. It's one reason why we become weak and diligent prayer for one another. It's another reason why we distance ourselves from the body why we don't have a desire to serve others. The list goes on and on. There are multiple ramifications that when the Christian is lacking in love, the whole body aches, but your own soul aches. And Jesus here, he just interlaces, interlaces his teaching on loving one another with how he loved us. So I think you get the point here. That It goes without saying that when we are lacking in love for others, we're lacking in the knowledge of God's love for us. If you're lacking in love that's displayed and not just emotion and sentiment, if you're lacking in sacrificial love for others in action, it's likely because you're lacking in the knowledge of God's love for you. That if you're in Christ and you've experienced this love, this love should work out in you. Now, I understand this is one of those sermons that can easily be one of those just point my finger at you and say, you need to love, you're not loving sermons. That's not the intent here. I don't want us to walk away here looking like, okay, I, I get it, I get it. Although we need to get it. But that's not the point here. That's not my intent. What I really want us to do, we need to be refreshed to know that the, what is our calling as Christians? Like, How are we to be identified? What is our calling? Jesus himself says that all men would know that you are Christians how? By your love. 1335 in this very book. still in the upper room discourse. How are all men in the church and outside the church going to know that you follow me? Because of your love. We need to be refreshed in the importance of love in the Christian's life. What does the demonstration of our identity in Christ look like? What does that demonstration look like? It looks like love. So how do you nurture just a local body church and stimulate them to love and good deeds? How do, we, how do we grow that? How do we nurture that into a local church? It's by fertilizing their hearts with the magnitude of God's love for them. You fertilize that heart with Christ's love and it works itself out in loving others, in action, in deed. So let's begin by just contemplating these three wonders of Christ's love that, that should stir you to love one another. I want us to first contemplate this first wonder of his sacrifice for you. His sacrifice for you. As he exhorts them to love, he says, love one another. But how? Just as, the end of verse 12, I have loved you. So love one another just as I have loved you. We can even just stop there and marvel at that for the end of this morning. And that would be sufficient. Because Christ is saying that you should love others as he loved you. Did you hear that? As he has loved you. When I stop and think about doing anything to the measure that Christ has done for me, I'm speechless. That he gave himself for me. That on his mind, his glory, but my benefit that he loved you for your good. To do anything to that measure should stop us in our tracks. And yet he's commanding, love as I have loved you. And he shows them how, what is the greatest act of love? What does this love look like in verse 13? He says, well, greater love than this. There is no greater love. That one laid down his life for his friends. Beloved, if you have been seized by Christ's love, Then you should be forever humbled by this reality that the son of God would come down in flesh and bear the wrath of God in your place. And he would not only remove your sin, but he would give to you his righteousness, that this should be a never ending humbling exercise for those who have received this love that we should be humbled by this love. He begins this discourse, you are to love, but here, the greatest act of love is this sacrificial love, which, by the way, I don't think they understood the depth of it at this point. They knew, they heard this time and time again, the Son of Man must die, but it sins for many, but they didn't really understand what was about to happen, that he was gonna die on the cross and rise again. But he knew, that he knew that he was soon going to demonstrate this great act of love. That he would demonstrate that in laying down his own life for his friends. And we have to understand that this is a sacrificial act of his love. That this love is obviously not displayed in just sentiment, but in this sacrifice. of his giving up of himself for the well-being of another. And we have to remember as we look at this that as far as his sacrifice in love, as far as his, his infinite value of that sacrifice, as far as that substitutionary character of that sacrifice, as far as the redemptive nature of that sacrifice, that can never be duplicated by us. Our love, our sacrificial love can never redeem another soul, right? Our, our sacrificial love can, can never pay the price or penalty for sin, right? That it can never be duplicated to that extent. Never. That He didn't just die to give us an example of how to love, but here he's nailing down the fact that this is the example of my love. But still, even though that's true, our love still should be sacrificial in nature. That Christian love, your love for someone else, for another believer, should be sacrificial in nature. Remember now, he is speaking to his disciples He's not speaking to the world and, and our interaction with the world. Although scripture is clear, we are to love our neighbor. So believer, and non-believer as ourself, he really is speaking to his disciples, the believers, that there is a special love that we are to have for one another. Galatians 6, 10, do good to all, especially those who are in the household of faith, that he is speaking to those who claim Christ, that we are to have a special love. And he's describing that this love is to be sacrificial in nature. I mean, think about all the ways that when Scripture is commanding us to love, for husbands to love their wife, what does that even compare to? It's again, His sacrifice for the church. The time and time again, when you see the believer's call to be loving through sacrifice, it's compared to Christ's love for us. Now, why do you think that is? Why is it that He compares our love that we ought to have to the love of Christ? I think one reason among many is because there's an implicit understanding that this kind of love is costly. In other words, this love that you are commanded to give is costly, it is at times hard. If he's comparing it to his own sacrifice, the point being here is that it is difficult sometimes to do this sacrificial love. It costs you something, and that's why it is sacrificial love, that we are to sacrificially love one another. It is costly. It's not natural to our flesh to love in the way Christ is loved. It's not natural to that flesh. But in the same way that his love was sacrificial, ours should be too. I mean, think about it. This really comes into play in a church with with various people, with various personalities, different priorities, desires, opinions, you name it. The temptation now is for people to live for their own benefit. For people in a mixed church body to live for their benefit alone, to put me first. And it has no place in the Christian's life Believe it, believer, there is no place in the Christian's life to think primarily about me and my benefit and my priority. That has to be set aside. The Lord knows this. That's why he knows we need to hear this, because if there's anything that's detrimental to a church body is the absence of love, the lack of love. That's why Rod read it for us earlier first john chapter 3 verse 16 you see the, the connection the relationship between christ's love for his church and your love for the brethren he says that we know love by this that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren now with this command although it's simple enough it is certainly one that is difficult to follow if you notice in the bible there's really no direct definition of love We're not given a definition of this is love. But all throughout scripture, there is an explanation, an illustration of this is what love looks like. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is concerned about others. That ultimately love is about expressing and laying down your life. There's no hard definition. But the point being is he is love. He demonstrated that love and it is difficult to live this out in the way that we ought to. He models this love for us and says, "We are to love in the same way He has loved us." But I want you to look at more who this sacrifice of love is for, Jesus says. Because it's not for everyone. It's for his friends. That one would lay down his life for his friends. In the next verse, he says that his friends, who are his friends, that he lays down his life for. Who are these friends? If you notice he does not describe these friends as being the elect although that's true but that's not how he's describing them in this verse he says who are my friends that i lay down my life it's those who do what i command you you are my friends he says if you do what i command you if you look back at the previous chapter verse 23 1423, he says if anyone loves me he will keep my word And my father will love him and we will come to him and make our abode with him. That we must lay much stress upon this clause that Jesus does. as He says that those who are truly his friends, who he comes to lay down his life for, they're not identified yet as being those who are elect or those who've been saved by divine grace, but those who do what he commands. In other words, the friend of Jesus is the one who obeys Jesus. That's an important lesson for us to heed, because he later on says in verse 19, excuse me, verse 16, which we'll look at, is he does emphasize divine election. He says, you did not choose me, I chose you. You see both truths happening, which is common in the gospel of John. He he does time and time again, where he's saying, yes, you chose me for the foundation of the earth, that the father draws you, the father calls you, but yet he says, anyone who comes to me, I will by no means turn aside. In the same passage here, he's saying, those who are my friends are those who obey me. And he also says, I, you don't choose me, I choose you. That we must remember that with these both truths, we hold them both up with attention, realizing that those who, those who God calls comes to him. And those who call to Christ, he will by no means turn aside. That you see divine election and human responsibility being taught time and time again from the mouth of Jesus. That both are true. That these friends who he sacrificially gives his life for are those who obey him. That one cannot say he's a friend of Jesus if he does not do what Jesus says. It's very simple, very plain, but important in his point. That we must contemplate deeply the sacrifice of Christ on your behalf. That what did he give up for your well being? That this love is sacrificial in nature. We have to move on. The second wonder we have to contemplate not only that, but contemplate in light along those lines is the status that he gave to you. I want you to contemplate the status that he gave to you. What do I mean by that? Because how did he describe those he died for? Your new status in Christ is friend. It's friend. You think about it that you are a child of God, true. You still are a slave of Christ, right? We're all slaves of Christ, true. But he's emphasizing a new relationship, and that is a friend of God. That the change of relationship from servants to friends is significant. In in order for us to really appreciate that we are friends of God, it doesn't mean much until we understand what our previous relationship with God was. What was your relationship with God before Christ saved you? Do you realize that you were at one point an object of his wrath? As John 3 says that the wrath of God abides on the unbelieving, that apart from His grace that you were an enemy of God, an outcast of God, and only by His own sacrificial doing He made you a friend. And Jesus here is comforting his disciples to know, "I don't call you servants anymore. I don't call you slaves anymore." I call you friend. You, you hear that believer in Christ. You hear that, that Jesus calls you friend. Do you marvel at the fact that you are no longer a slave in the fact that you're outcast, not knowing about his business, but he's invited you into his kingdom so that you are a friend of Jesus. That this must be something we contemplate often, that this new status, new relationship has been gifted to you in Christ that you are now friends with the king. Even though both friends and servants obey blindly, but now friends, they're taken into confidence. It was customary with, with Roman emperors and kings in the Middle East to have a very select group of people who were called the friends of the king or friends of the emperor. And at times, they had access to the king, excuse me, at all times, they had access to the king as being a friend of the king. That this select group of people whom the king has chosen, these friends of the king, they had ultimate access at any point with this king. That they can go into his courts any time of the day and he would invite them warmly because they're friends of the king. This was select access that no one else had. At the beginning of the day, he invited them to come into his bedchamber bed and he would discuss things with them. Even before he would discuss things with his generals and his admirals, that he would discuss with his friends the king's friends, intimate matters. That these friends of the king were those who had the closest, most intimate connection with him. That you couldn't just be a friend of king just because you wanted to. But the king had to select you and say, you know, you are my friend. Come into my presence at any point. And Jesus is here saying, you're no longer that outcast. You're no longer that servant or slave. You're a friend of mine. And as a friend of God, what happens He explains, I've called you friends for all things that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. As a friend of God, he shares divine truth with you. That as a friend of God, you know intimate, deep, divine truths because he has shared them with you. He says that the the slave doesn't know what the master is doing. But you as a friend, you know all things because I've revealed them to you. In chapter 17, verse 6, When he's praying to the Father, he's saying, I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. I've manifested your name. I've made your name known to whom? Those whom you've given me. Verse six says, they were yours and you gave them to me and they have kept your word. Now they come to know that everything you have given me is from you. Why? Why? Verse eight, for the words which you gave me, I have given to them and they received them and truly understood that I came forth from you and they believe that you sent me. That he had a mission here of he shared divine truth with these select people, these friends of his. And he says here, I made this known to you that you are my friend, your recipient of my greatest love and I share divine truth with you. Matthew 13 verse 11 says to you, it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them, those outside, it has not been granted. So not only does he share divine truth with you, but as a friend, you have a new relationship with God, a new relationship with God. Recall that the people of old, in the Old Testament, when they walked with God, has described these men walked with God. Specifically, James chapter two, verse 23 speaks of Abraham. And it's in the context of works, it says, the scripture was fulfilled, which says that Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. But even more about Abraham, what does it say? And he was called the friend of God. That Abraham was called the friend of God. Having been justified by God, he is now a friend. That's what justification does. This just one aspect of justification. When God declares the guilty sinner righteous based upon the merit of Christ and Christ alone, he declares you righteous. And not only does he declare you righteous, but now he bestows upon you the title of friend. To have a friend with God. Beloved, have you ever considered the benefits of friendship with God? I'm not asking you, have you ever thought about what does it mean to be saved by God? I'm asking you, have you ever considered the benefits of being a friend of God? Think about it this way. When I was in high school, and I guess maybe showing my age a little bit, but when I was high school, that's kind of shorter when the cell phones started to become more popular, and they became out, and I got my first uh, flip phone when I was a freshman in high school. And my other friend got his, his flip phone as well. It's a new thing for us, right? No longer the landlines. And we would just call each other whenever we want, talk about nothing, <laughs> nothing important. But you know, he's my best friend, and we would call each other up all the time. And as a friend, just think about the relationship you have with your best friend that you don't have with other people. I mean, think about that close relationship with that best friend. I would call him up, it'd be 11 o'clock, 12 a.m., 1 a.m. Hey, what you doing? Sleeping? Oh, okay. Anyway, so, it's like, I don't care. We're we're homies. Like, we're going to talk. I don't care what you're doing. I call you up any point I want. Like, you're my friend. That as a friend, you have a compadre, you have someone you can call up at any point in time. Guess what happened? And nothing happened. right? <laughs> but you call tell about anything. That this friend is someone you have a close relationship with. One that you share joys with. One that you share grief with. One that you share news with. That this friend has a special relationship with you that no one else does. It's like that friend you can meet you haven't seen with years, but when you reunite, it's like you never missed a beat. That friend that you have the hearty laughs with that no one else understands. They look at you like you're crazy that here when Jesus says that you're a friend of God, we have to realize he's emphasizing here the nature of the new relationship that you have with God, that he is one that he shares not only his divine truth with, but he is one that we are to share our deepest joys with, our greatest joys, our greatest griefs, our greatest hurts, our greatest news, that he is one we come to his presence often as a friend of the king. And I say, king, look what happened today. No matter how small the care is, no matter how small the joy is, he is one who will welcome you warmly into his presence at any point in the day because you are a friend and you have a privilege that no one else has outside of Christ because he has called you friend. That he invited you to come into his presence. He says, I call you a friend. That there's a new relationship now that you have. And you have this with God. That he calls you friend. That he's your first point of contact. He's the first one who gets that text, if you, so, if, if you will. That you have this with God. That he has declared you a friend. If you were born again Christian, the implication obviously is the instant that your soul was regenerated by the miraculous power of the Holy Spirit. The instant your soul was regenerated, you became a friend of God. But by implication, that same instant that your soul was regenerated, you became a friend with God's friends, that now you have a relationship with God's people that you didn't have before. Because if that is true, then that sacrificial love also should express itself out in being friendship with his people. That he says that you are my friend, but even more now we have to realize by implication that we are friends with God's friends. That believers now, we're called to love them in the same way he has loved us. We are called to bestow upon them honor the way he's bestowed upon us honor. He has given us a new status. And now we have a new status with believers. That they are not your friends by your calling, but by his. So in Romans chapter 12, verse 10, it says, to be devoted to brotherly love, give preference to one another in honor. That time and time again, the point here is that you are to love one another, bestow honor upon one another, that you have a new relationship with the body of Christ, that with local believers, you have a new relationship where you not only seek to sacrificially love the brethren, but also to bestow honor upon them by loving and serving them. That yes, we're slaves of Christ still, but he's emphasizing the fact that now you have a new status with this God. That he is your friend. We have to move on. The third wonder is his selection of you. His selection of you. The Lord makes it clear in verse 16 that you did not choose me, as we said. He says, you didn't choose me. I chose you, which is important in this time as well because when rabbis or when students wanted want to be taught by a rabbi, the students would go to the rabbi and they would ask them, if they can disciple them. They would approach that rabbi so they can sit under his teaching for a while and be learned by that rabbi. That was common in that culture that Jesus was in, that the student picked the rabbi. But Jesus here is saying in that context, no, 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 you didn't choose me. I chose you. I found you. You were worried about fishing. I wanted to make you a fisher of men. That I sought you. I went after you. You weren't looking for me. Beloved, we know this very well. When the Lord saved you, were you looking for him at that time? What did he do? For many of the testimony, he has to bring you down to your lowest of lowest till you realize you, you thought that maybe I can still pursue this, go after this. Maybe I can find some sort of joy here. Maybe this will work now. I've heard about that before, but I'm not ready for that. And what did God do? He brought you to your knees and he turned your head up and you saw Christ. He chose you. That wasn't something that you were so wise enough at some point that we wised up and said, you know what? I'm doing the right thing. No, no, he chose you. What he says to his disciples, I walked up to you. I called you by name. And I said, follow me. It's the point in humbling them to realize that you didn't choose me. That all this love that I bestowed upon you, yes, I sacrificed my life. I've made you a friend, but keep in mind, you did not even deserve it because I chose you. You weren't even the cream of the crop. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) But I chose you, that I made you worthy. He's flipping this around, that he sought them. He makes it clear. As a friend of God, you have been chosen by God. Romans 9 verse 16 says, it does not depend upon the man who wills or the man who runs, but upon God who has mercy. That in God's selection of you, it is a matter of mercy. His selection of you was not a matter of your merit, it was a matter of his mercy. That was the only reason There's no merit we had, nothing we brought to the table. What qualified us to be a friend of the God of the universe? What qualified us that Jesus would lay down his life and see me as worthy of his sacrifice? What made that that qualification? Nothing but his mercy. He's drawing their eyes to see, look in my love for you. I chose you. But there's a purpose to his selection, I chose you and appointed you that you would go and do what? Bear fruit and that your fruit will remain so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give to you. There's a purpose that God has in, in saving you. When God called you out, you are not just called just to be saved, amen and amen, but you are called for a purpose and that purpose is to bear fruit. Keep in mind the section right before this one, Jesus speaking of the, the relationship that these followers have with him. And how does he explain that relationship that the believers are to have with Christ? To abide in me. That's your relationship with Christ. Abide in Christ. Why? So that you bear fruit. And now he's speaking now of the believer's relationship with one another. Love one another. And why did he save us? So we would love one another, thus bearing fruit. You were saved for a purpose. And that really informs us because the only way to get success out of any mission is to understand what is the point of this mission. The point of this mission is to get mission accomplished. But how is that done? He, he explains that very clearly. It's you are appointed to bear fruit. That we've been appointed for lasting fruit. And look how he even explains it even more. So that whatever you ask in, of the Father in my name, he may give to you. That this bearing fruit is also manifested through answered prayer. That believer, when God saved you, he saved you to bear fruit. And even that you would bear fruit through answered prayer. That in this context here, he says, I chose you and I chose you also so that you would bear my name and that others would be called unto me because I chose them as well. Now think about the great commission he would give to them at the end of his mission. "That You go and make disciples, teaching them all that I've commanded you, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, that he chose them to call out others for his kingdom. This is an ongoing ministry that he called them to bear fruit so that whatever they pray, Whatever they ask of him, they would give to him in his name. That his love is purposeful. That Christ's love is purposeful. It was by his design, not ours. And what was the design? That we would bear fruit. That we would bear good deeds. Think about it this way. I think Last I checked, Jeff Bezos is probably the second most wealthiest man in, this, in the world. And he, I don't know his worth. But say J- Jeff Bezos came up to you and he had one million dollars. And he says, I'm going to give you $1 million. This is for you to do whatever with it, whatever you want. Now, in today's world, a million dollars won't last you long. But he's going to give you a million dollars. That's a good start. Now, if you're wise, what I would do at least if he came and gave me this million dollars, I wouldn't just spend it willy-nilly first or spe- spend it where I think is wise or invest it Howard-wise. I would first ask Jeff. I'm like, Jeff, now you had a million dollars at one point, and now you got billions, what should I do with this $1 million? How should I work with this $1 million? So I can multiply it. Because I don't want to rely on my own wisdom, my own doing. I want to know how do I multiply this million dollars? In a very small way, when Christ... That's a small way of picturing. But when Christ bestows upon us glorious treasures of salvation and riches that are rooted upon his sacrifice, the point is not for it just to sit upon us, but for us to take that wealth and spread and bear fruit. And what was the purpose of him calling us out and bestowing upon us riches upon riches so that we would bear fruit? That he designed the purpose, that he saves us and he calls us to bear lasting fruit. That in your relationships with other Christians, I think it's mindful, it's it's helpful for us to be mindful about being a catalyst and bearing fruit. There's many times in in relationships where we look at what can I get from this other person? What did this person do for, for me? And I'll reciprocate. What can I get from this? And then I can maybe respond. Many times if we're honest, sometimes the amount and the depth of our love is contingent upon the love we've received. It happens in marriage, that happens at home, it happens at work, it happens in the church. That oftentimes the amount of love that we actively, sacrificially give is contingent upon the love we felt we have received first. And that kind of love cannot survive in a healthy church. I mean, just think about many stories you've heard of people when they're considering a church and they're looking at churches, how often are criticisms of the church they're attending all about really their own opinions about what's they've been impacted by, about what they didn't get from the church, about how the church didn't serve them, about how the church didn't meet a need they thought they should have been met. It's always about something about to do with your benefit. Now, I'm not saying you don't want to, not to analyze churches. We want to analyze churches for the right thing, for a sound doctrine, for teaching and practice. But most of the time, criticisms of churches have to do with How I felt I should have been received. How I felt I should have been treated. How I felt I should have been loved. But really here, Jesus here is not saying, make sure you're loved. He's saying, no, you love others that the point he's bringing home is you should love because I loved sacrificially. I loved proactively. I bo- bestowed upon you status. I gave you that friendship. I called you to bear fruit. That was the purpose. Anytime when selfishness pervades a church, it's like an autoimmune disease that hits a body. If you're in Christ and there's lack of love, there's no neutral ground. It's not as if you're just loving or just neutral. If there's no active intent on loving and serving the body, it can be like an autoimmune disease that's just attacking the body. And he wants to preserve the body, the health of the body, so that every single believer is intent on one thing, loving one another because Christ loved me. And when we lose sight of that, we lose sight of that active sacrificial love because we lost sight of the sacrificial love that's been bestowed upon me. That we need to think more about how can I love than how do I, or what do I get out of this bargain? Philippians 2, 3, consider others as more significant than yourself. So I know we, we went quickly through these contemplations but i want to really ask you how much do you spend contemplating on on christ's love for you that's a question i think we prod often but one that we need to pay attention to how much do we contemplate christ's love for us how much do you think about the sacrifice that he gave for you how much do you contemplate the fact that, yes, you are a son of God, a child of God, but he also emphasizes the new relationship of being a friend with him and what that entails being a friend, of coming before his throne of mercy and grace at any point, of sharing your deepest joys and distresses and struggles with him, that he calls you friend. How much do you contemplate upon the costly sacrifice of his son? How much are you humbled by his selection of you? How much does this work in our contemplations, in our thoughts? Because one true test of this is do you love others? We can answer that question is how much do I contemplate on Christ's love for me? We can answer that test by saying, well, do I love others? Do I sacrificially give for others? Am I thinking more about others than myself? These are all basic questions, but one that has to come to the test of faith. Do you love others? Okay, I'm going to be honest. One of the biggest struggles I had in preparing this sermon is I feel like that this, this point here is okay, we all know that. I get it. Love one another. Yes, I, I know that. It's, it's, it's pretty obvious. But if it's so obvious, beloved, then why does the Lord, why does God in the whole counsel of scripture spend time and time again repeating this very teaching? From the Genesis all the way to the end, to loving your neighbor as yourself. Why is it emphasized so many times in the counsel of God if it is so obvious to our ears? Why? Because he realizes how fickle people are. He realizes how weak we are. He realizes how selfish we are. He realizes how prone that we are to turn our eyes from the most basic, fundamental teaching that he has. Love others because I have loved you. That this is the goal of our love is to love the way that he has loved us. That the point of all of this instruction, like First 1 Timothy 1, 1.5, the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart. Like that's the goal of our instruction, love from a pure heart and a pure conscience and a sincere faith. But still, we'd be remiss if we failed to emphasize the Lord's objective in describing this love that we've been talking about. As we talked about in verse 12 and verse 17, what's his main objective? He's describing his love, his miraculous love, his sacrificial love, his glorious love. But what is his objective for us? What do we need to hear? And what do we need to put boots on the ground to? And that is to love one another. So our love should be sacrificial in nature. Now, I, I want to show just a quick picture of this. Romans chapter 12 is a, is a common passage that I'm sure we know well. And in that passage in Romans 12, it's often used, and rightly so, to describe to us how we are to live in this world as those who've been bought by Christ. How do I renew my mind? Amen and amen. But an often element aspect of this passage that's often missed is one thing that Paul really wants to drive home for the Romans in Romans chapter 12 is love and unity. And why do I say that? Because if our love should be sacrificial, I want us to see how this sacrificial love is poured out all throughout Scripture. Romans chapter 12, it says, Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Now obviously we look at that, yes. God is calling us to lay my life as a sacrificial worship, to lay my life down as on the altar of sacrifice. But let's pay more careful attention to how he words this. I urge you, brethren, he's speaking plural to everyone, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies, again, plural, right? Your bodies, everyone, but how? Singular, a living and single, a living and a holy sacrifice. He's speaking to multiple people, plural, and he wants all of us, everyone, to be one sacrifice. Why is that important? Because then he pours out and says in verse three, talking about the gifts given to the church, as everyone, every, everyone, he's called us all, every single person, plural, to be one sacrifice. In other words, to be one body, to be unified. And how is that unity worked out? In the next few verses, he says, verse four, we have many members but what in one body and all the members do not have all the same function. And then he explains there, different people are given different gifts. So in this one body, though there are multiple people, the point here is that we should all lay down our lives as a sacrifice, as one sacrifice, one body, so that now we can serve the body. How? Through the gifts that God has given us. Though we have many members, these many members have one purpose, die to self for the sake of the body. Die to self for the sake of the body. He's given us different gifts. And that's why now in verse 9, let love be without hypocrisy. This should be true love. practicing hospitality, you see, as he's working his way out here, he's starting and speaking to a corporate body, and he's saying to this corporate body, be one. Die to self as one sacrifice so that you may serve the body. It's not about us. It's not about the one that we are to love sacrificially as Christ loves sacrificially. We are to show honor as Christ has shown us honor, that we show honor to one another as he has showed honor to us. That even more, our, our love is to be purposeful for one another. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24, it says, considering how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. That we are commanded, he says, to stimulate one another in love and good deeds. And when we hear that, we think more about the love and good deeds, which is true. But pay co- close attention, he says, consider, which is the imperative, the command. Think about, ponder, consider. How to love one another. What does that tell us about the nature of our love? Yes, it's to be sacrificial. Yes, we to show honor. But we are to think intently, ponder, reflect about how can I actually love one another? There may be times when our love for one another is is very clear and I can just impulsively love somebody. But scripture here is also saying that we are to be purposeful about our love. That my love I am to consider and ponder how can I stir up my brother or my sister unto good deeds and love. How can I do that? How can I think about that? Let me ponder how to do that that we are to be purposeful in our love, just as he was purposeful in his love for us so that we would bear fruit. So now when I love my brother and my sister, I want to think about how can they bear fruit? I want to think about how they can be fruitful. What what gifts has God given me so that I can render services to my brother and sister so that they would be edified, so that they would bear fruit? I'm thinking about the body because I am a living sacrifice with the God and I want to serve them. That because he laid a sacrifice for me, I want to be sacrificed for the body. Now, obviously, again, as I said earlier, our sacrifice is not as effectual as his because it's not redemptive, but yet he's showing us the pattern that our love is to be sacrificial, to show honor. It's to be purposeful. It's to meet pressing needs. Titus three fourteen: teach your people to meet pressing needs. First John chapter three, we looked at with um, verse 18 or verse 17. It's saying, if you see a brother in need and you, you close up your heart, how can the love of God be within you? There are many other ways. Praying for one another. as Charles Spurgeon said that no man can do me a truer kindness kindness in this world than to pray for me. That diligent intercessory prayer for your brother and sister. Diligent prayer. Although the, the, the short prayers are good and fine. But sometimes we limit our prayer life for others just to that. But how much have you spent in agony over the soul of another? How much have you spent in agony before the throne praying for a brother and sister who's struggling right now? How much has that tied up our soul in tears and weeping and pleading before the throne for a brother or sister? That's love. Serving one another, discipling one another, all the one another's. I mean, beloved, we, we are so good at defining God's sovereign, gracious love toward Christians, but oftentimes, if we're honest, we're the poorest examples of it sometimes. That we can be the poorest examples. That I, 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 I can define and I can explain sovereign election. I can explain Christ's love. I know all about soteriology. But when it comes to practice, I am the poorest demonstration of this love. And that should not be with the house of God. That we should be intently, actively thinking about how to love. And that love is displayed in action. And it's costly. It costs us something. The danger is always that we learn to grow and appreciate the sound doctrine, but fail to embrace it in the way that Jesus wanted his disciples and us to embrace it. That he wanted them to be a light. He wanted them to love one another. He wanted you to love other Christians who don't have the same views as you. He wanted you to love other Christians who don't have the same view as vaccines as you. He wanted you to love other Christians who don't have the same politics as you. He wanted you to love other Christians who don't have the same views on schooling as you. He wanted you to love other Christians who don't even love you in return. That your love is to be proactive, sacrificial, costly, showing honor, purposeful, bearing fruit for his glory. It's oftentimes people say, I love the church, that we love the church. I love the church. I love God's people. But let's ask a pressing question of our soul. Do you love the most difficult person in your church body? Do you love the most cantankerous person in the church body? Do you love the most stubborn person in the church body? Do you love the most difficult person? Because if you don't love that, if he's in Christ, she's in Christ, that's still Christ's body, and he cares. He says to love one another just as I have loved you. And if you think you're better than them... When I loved you, you got it all wrong. To love the person who Christ has loved. Love one another. This can be a dangerous self-assessment, but I, I do want to give it. I give it to my own soul, and I'm still convicted by it. But if someone were to describe you, they said, put you on trial, and they would describe you, with some of the words, the first descriptions of your own soul, when they describe you, would it be loving? If someone were to say, hey, what do you think of this person? What do they think of you? Would the first words come out their mouth? would be loving. I mean, if that's the primary command here, would they describe you as loving? Now, keep in mind, if it's the world, sometimes people don't have, have a skewed view of love, right? But would they say something of the light? Well, he, he gives of himself. She gives of herself. She is sacrificial. She is thinking about others. He's thinking about others. Would those be the first descriptions that people think when they instantly think of you? Would that come to mind? If not... There may be something lacking here. That are we contemplating much about Christ's love in me? That we have to realize that the greatest apologetic for the church amongst the world, one of the greatest apologetics, I would argue, is a church marked with love and unity. That's why Jesus says, they will know you by your love. That the Lord's believers should have love for one another. Remember God's love in Christ for you. Now, love the brethren. Let's pray. Father, this call of love is a high one and one that we need to reflect upon and to be changed by and to grow in. And God, if we're honest, how much are we so selfish in thinking about my own self, thinking about our own desires, our own priorities? But Father, I pray that we would grow in sacrificial love, that we would, at a cost, at expense, love one as you have loved us in Christ. In his name we pray, amen.